and she doesn't judge any of them. There's no sort of one right way of being queer in that book. It's just sort of an evaluation of different ways of expressing desire and your sexuality. And there's no real kind of um, conclusion, I suppose. It's just sort of really formless. Um, and I do definitely think of queerness as sort of being work in progress. Hi there, and welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Amelia Abraham, a journalist and writer, and I'm really excited to introduce a Pride episode of the Vintage Books podcast today. I've recently edited a book for Vintage. We can do better than this. 35 Voices on the Future of LGBTQ Plus Rights. It's an anthology of writing on the subject of what still needs to change to make life better for queer people around the world. With contributions from incredible writers, activists, and performers, like the photographer Wolfgang Tillmans, Itza Sins Oli Alexander, Beth Ditto, trans writers like Juliet Jakes and Sean Fay, the Brazilian drag superstar Pablo Vittar, and K-pop star Holland. Many, many more too. I'll be talking to two of the contributors today, Amru Alkadi and Nisha Dolan. Amru is a TV writer, an incredible drag queen known as Glamru, and the author of the book Life as a Unicorn a memoir about their experiences as a queer person growing up in a Muslim family and coming into their non-binary identity through drag. They're also a very good friend of mine. Nisha, I have not had the pleasure of meeting, but I am very excited to. She is an incredible novelist and her debut book, Exciting Times, was rightfully acclaimed by critics and the press. It was actually Amru who told me to read it. So I'm very excited to talk to both Amru and Nisha today. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Amelia. How are you, my queen? Yes, I'm good, thank you. What is happening with you? What is happening with me? I am currently in a hotel room in Prague, quarantining, um, before I go on a film set tomorrow to do some shooting. Shooting film, not shooting clay pigeons. Okay, amazing. Um, We're here to talk a bit about the book that I'm publishing. Congratulations. Thank you. We can do better than this, which you've kindly contributed to. So maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, But foremost, we're here to talk about queer reading and the influence it's had on our lives and continues to have. Uh, So I guess I wanted to start by asking you, is there a memory of a queer book that was really formative for you um, or that almost even helped you work out that you were queer? Hmm. I don't think there were actually books that helped me realise I was queer, mostly because I was, in my teenage years, didn't have access to much literature at all, just from the household that I was in. Um, And then also, you know, being raised in Dubai and Bahrain. So, but, so in terms of like realising I was queer, Definitely not in a book, but a book that helped me really rethink my queer identity and also question it besides what, you know, I was seeing around me just sort of in society 
was a book called The Argonauts by um, Maggie Nelson, which sort of part memoir, part criticism, part sort of just philosophy. It's an amazing queer book because it really expands about queerness beyond sort of who you have sex with which is sort of where I thought it what it meant early on when I came out as as gay I just thought oh being queer means I have sex with men and that's sort of the end of it whereas the Argonauts is sort of this book where she questions sort of everything around her in the most sort of interesting and radical ways and it always the tone is always shifting the subject matter is always shifting it kind of as a book itself formally is very queer in the fact that it's really non-linear, non-hierarchical. It rethinks everything. Um, it questions everything. I mean, there's these amazing passages where she talks about, um, and, and, and in the book, she's pregnant and her partner is transitioning um, from female to male. And so they're mid-transition. And then they have this moment where they're walking around the Mall of America and she's pregnant and he looks really butch and they're holding hands and they look at um, a mirror in the middle of the mall and they're like, oh my God, we look like the most normcore, normative couple in this room, but people don't really know like how queer we actually are. I found that kind of amazing in that book. It's just an amazing, it, it's very much queerness as a sort of way of being rather than um, sort of who you have sex with. And I really, once I read that, I was sort of reevaluating a lot of things in my life as well. Yeah, I absolutely love that book. And I love Maggie Nelson so much. Um, there's not really another writer like her. I love The Red Parts is actually my favourite book by her, mm. um, which is all about violence, I suppose. Um, but yeah, The Argonauts was incredible too. Um, really helpful for thinking about queer families. Um, and what that can look like and queer love queer families yeah Yeah, queer love Um, and also just um, the fact that queerness is sort of really unstable and sort of chaotic you know within the book she examines many different things as potentially queer including motherhood which um, you know some people might sort of reduce to a kind of really heteronormative activity but she looks at motherhood and care and her body changing and she looks at it through a trans experience as well so she evaluates motherhood in a really queer way she evaluates there's this amazing bit in the book where she talks about these people who only go and have sex in countries where it's illegal to be gay in order to Mm -hmm. um sort of relish their transgression and she doesn't judge any of them there's no sort of one right way of being queer in that book it's just sort of an evaluation of different ways of expressing desire and your sexuality and there's no real kind of um conclusion I suppose it's just sort of really formless um and I do definitely think of queerness as sort of being work in progress I'm interested in the fact that you said growing up there weren't many books that really helped you navigate your identity. Do you think that's because you couldn't see yourself represented in queer literature? Or do you think it's because there wasn't so much queer literature at the time? Or was it simply just where you were and what you were exposed to? Um, It's probably a factor of things. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was definitely sort of pre-online. I mean, obviously the internet was a thing, but... um, 
the only way to really find a book that spoke to me would have been, you know, go literally going into a bookshop and going into a library and trying to find it. And I had very strict parents who sort of monitored my every move. So, so that kind of ability to go and browse for alternative forms um, of writing and reading, you know, just was pragmatically not available. And I just wasn't internet literate in the way that I would be able to find those things. And so, and then, so really the kind of stuff that I was reading was definitely just stuff that was presented at school and, you know, stuff that was much more mass culturally available, like Harry Potter or that kind of thing. And obviously as a queer person, you're always trying to read yourself into those characters anyway. You know, a lot of queer people sort of felt like Harry Potter rejected from his family, had this sort of secret magic power but I'm sort of envious but also very happy of younger people today I mean they've been given the short end of the stick in terms of climate change but they must have loads of access readily readily um, available access to books which they might feel see themselves in because of the internet and because there's just more of it um, but yeah I didn't even know where to look personally I don't know about you I don't think I really found myself in books either growing up. Uh, I think more in films, um, in queer cinema. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how I explored my queer identity because I really feel that there weren't um, many books or if there were, I didn't know what they were. Um, there weren't kind of like queer reading lists readily available. I mean, I went to like a Catholic convent school. We, we, queerness just wasn't talked about at all. Um, and, and when I turned... 18 uh, and I started to kind of come into my queer identity more I was at university at that time and I was studying queer literature so then I did to start to discover queer theory um, mm. and that like really really helped me um, as you say not so much just like same-sex stories but more kind of theoretical approaches uh, and I remember reading David Wonorovich mm. And his writing at university when I was about 18 and being like, okay, this is the most beautiful writing I've ever read. And he writes a lot about cruising and then there's, he writes a lot about um, you know, HIV um, and it's like super affecting. But I think his attitude, he's kind of like queer as outlaw, which I really love. Um, and it, it kind of reimagines like, yeah, the, like the, not the great American novel, but there's something quite... It's like Wild West about the way he traverses America. So when you wrote Unicorn, were you thinking actively about kind of what you were contributing to queer representation or who was reading it or not really? Um, no, I was. I mean, I actually was. I, so people don't really know this, but originally it wasn't actually a memoir. Like we pitched originally a series of essays that were a lot more sort of... Um, uh, more kind of queer theory outlook on Islam and drag. But actually, as you mentioned earlier, there is a lot of available queer theory out there. Amazing work. And actually, the first queer literature that I ever wrote, read, rather, was was queer theory. Um, never so much sort of stories, but more kind of, you know, Judith Butler and um, post-structuralists and that kind of queer outlook on what, society and how it's formed and that kind of stuff um 
So that's how I originally conceived of riding a unicorn. But when I got into it and started talking with my agents and potential editors about it, you know, we kind of realized that actually like this specific story about, you know, a queer Muslim, my story hasn't actually ever really been written about um, through storytelling. Um, And like, I became really interested in that as a different kind of politics. Like, as you know, like I used to write a lot for like The Independent and a bit for The Guardian and that kind of stuff. So I, I had been used to sort of writing 600 words where I could kind of explore something that had happened in um, in the news through my lens as a queer Muslim or whatever. But um, I ended up finding all that quite reductive because you're ending up sort of reducing your identity and experience to sort of a, like a debating point or a sort of political weapon. And so Unicorn, I was like, well, I'm going to just write about my experience as a queer Muslim as a story with characters without ever engaging in kind of quote unquote political questions and and theory and just talk about it first person and see how people respond to that. And the response was amazing to that because I think it's so easy currently with the news and how polarized everything is to be caught up into kind of culture war positions. Are you either this or are you that? And it's really exhausting and everyone's choosing one specific side of the coin. But I do think with storytelling, when you when you sort of get rid of the framing of it as a debate or um, even as sort of politics and you just write a story, no matter what side, hopefully, of the, of the kind of political spectrum you are, you can relate. And that's why I really do think storytelling is really key right now um, within particularly for the trans community because there's so many narratives being written about the trans community by the media in a really bad faith way and as you know when we get invited on tv we end up just having to shout back because it's like they're saying a lie but we never get to tell stories like on our own terms and so I really do sort of believe in like the politics of a quote-unquote non-political story because I think it can elicit empathy and understanding from people who might see themselves as being outside your sphere of of um, experience. Right, totally. And I think seeing the response to your book, it's really done that. Uh, is there an example of a book, I wonder, that you feel has kind of done that for you, like a memoir, for instance? There's an amazing memoir by um, Jeanette Winterson called Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which is a memoir about uh, a sort of a, a young queer child in a religious um, in a religious household, which really spoke to me. It just really gets across because I was brought up in a really religious household, and it really gets across um, that sort of fear when you're younger and misunderstanding and how anything that your parents do or anything that um, the priest says or whatever, it just is so magnified as a kid. Because, you know, as a kid, you really are so small and you can only see the world as it is presented right in front of you. You can't see outside of what's in front of you at all. And uh, that book uh, is really good at showing um, the impact of, of, of repression and kind of conservatism religiously but also socially in a household when you're really young she really gets into the sort of psyche of a young child growing up in a household like that and so that book was always means a lot to me and actually I ended up going to it when I wrote the chapters in in Unicorn there's also a really good book and I think you've read it as well called A Dutiful Boy by Moisin 
which is an amazing, uh, another queer Muslim memoir, which is, it's so great that there's more of us. Mohsin um, Zaidi, yeah, that's uh, a great book. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, as you say, it's a, it's, a, it's a memoir about going growing up gay and Muslim. Uh, it's from a family in sort of like working class part of East London. And um, yeah, the way that his uh, family that who originally from Pakistan embrace him is just absolutely like beautiful in the end. It's like really hopeful, but so heartbreaking. I yeah, yeah. An and really kind mess. and generous as well. Yeah, really beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask you about your essay for We Can Do Better Than This. Do you want to maybe explain for our listeners what you wrote about? Um, I decided to write about why it's been so hard to find a partner whilst dating in the gay community. Partly because I think in a lot of like narratives around coming out, it's sort of like you come out and then it's great and then you have a great life full of sex and relationships and now that you're living freely as your your kind of identity. And so I wanted to write about a more kind of granular problem within the dating, particularly gay male community, not exclusively, but I tend to date mostly men um, and wanted to use the essay to explore why it has been so hard to find a partner within that community, partly because of all the shame that a lot of gay people inherit growing up, but also the way that shame, that that shame informs their behaviour, whether it's racism or, you know, femphobia or transphobia or fear of any, they don't want to date someone who's not masculine or that kind of thing. So I wanted to look at why the gay community itself is an sort of a utopia and how kind of external societal problems of homophobia and transphobia and femphobia and all of that worm, worm themselves into the um, gay dating scene. And I also wanted to talk about how um, I moved past that and, and how drag helped me um, move past some of the shame that I had inherited as well. I think it's a really important topic because it's also partly about kind of being alone or loneliness or like, you know, I'm, use, I'm using inverted commas here, like failure, because you actually refute the idea that not having a partner is a failure because that's a very heteronormative idea. And yeah, something you do in the essay is kind of unpick your feelings of sort of shame around that and why you're made to feel like that. And I think the reason is because we're just bombarded with these kind of like romantic stories all the time. Um, and we never really hear the opposite. Um, we never really hear about like being alone or like, you know, so I think uh, it's a really, I think it's a super important essay. Thank you so much for writing Thank, it. Thanks for having me, pal. What kind of change do you hope that that essay affects or, or what kind of response do you hope people have when they're reading it? Um, well, you know, it's funny, I was talking to someone about this the other day about how, like, when we go and watch a lot of queer TV, all these, like, gays are having sex all the time and it's always amazing and always really fun and we're always like, wow, we must be the only gays in the world who aren't having that much sex because look how, you know, so I want people, you know, queer people who feel like dating is really hard or scary or... um difficult to navigate to sort of see that they're not alone in that um because i think actually a lot of queer representation likes to show like the great sort of sexual freeness of our 
communities, but actually like that's not how it is for a lot of people, but there's not really enough space to discuss that. Um, and also, um, hopefully, I suppose, encourage anyone not to sort of change who they are in order to find a partner because ultimately like that is a doomed strategy which is something else I talk about in the book as in the um, essay as well is you know attempts at sort of making myself less feminine or more feminine in order to suit whatever fetish is expected of me in the gay community was ultimately doomed to fail and so I would hopefully people could read it and feel um just free to just be exactly as they are Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. In terms of your recent reading, what's been on the list? What's been, uh, you know, moving you recently? Um, I just finished Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Oh my God, which so good. Is, it's just so funny. And so I just like how irreverent and unapologetic it is, you know, I think with a lot of queer stories, stories you can sort of feel yourself apologizing and trying to get people to empathize with you and I think this book is just really good at just I mean it's it's sort of ruthlessly blunt about everything um and it really um really helped me understand what nav just what navigating life as a trans woman might feel like because the book just brings you and immerses you into that world so um so sort of um it just plunges you into it and you know you almost feel as if you are viewing everything through her perspective in a way that is really illuminating and there's a lot of stuff I hadn't thought about um in terms of how approaching sex and dating and jobs and how all of that is sort of affected by being trans and the but you know it's not sort of manual on being trans it's a really funny like irreverent wild ride but it just sort of immerses you in the experience and you just have to go along with it um and i i just thought that was really really exciting i'm currently reading a proof of the right to sex by amira I'm currently reading a proof of The Right to Sex by Amir Srinivasan, which is an incredible series of essays which really looks at questions of sex um, in the contemporary world and how some forms of feminism fail to address them. So giving an example would be, you know, porn, anti-porn feminists who believe that maybe porn only denigrates uh women ended up using the sort of apparatus of the state in order to ban some pornography and that actually ended up mostly harming queer sex workers and queer queer people um who practice pornography um and are empowered doing it and so it sort of looks at it's really interesting looking at it with where the uk is right now which i think you know, huge sects of feminism are really failing, particularly in response to trans identity. It kind of just shows the book really cleverly how um, a feminism that sort of aligns too closely with like carceral politics or politics of the state end up always harming women. And it's just a really, really clever series of essays. I remember the reading the original online and... It was also really interesting on 
the topic of kind of dating app discrimination and preference over prejudice and you know as you say whether whether you have anyone has a right to sex um and yeah well it's and that and that links back to your essay in this book i think a a little bit because you were talking about similar topics in terms of um dating app discrimination and how that how how, well i mean amia amia does it with much more profundity than i do um, mine's just like, why won't anyone sleep with me? But I think, but Mia does ask some very interesting questions that I think we all need to ask of, is who we desire, you know, the question of who we desire is such a loaded question, especially in the age of kind of consent politics. We're always just asking about like, it's okay to sit, you know, Mia's book is good at this because it, it, it almost feels like in mainstream society, culture the only question we need to ask about sex is do i want it or do i not want it it's just a kind of question of consent whereas she's asking questions of is what you want even consensual i suppose and how has that been formed by political forces and that is something i think it's a really tricky thing to interrogate because you don't want to pathologize anyone's fetishes or um, desires but you know there is a reason that there are many white gay men who just say they will not sleep with Asians. And that isn't purely desire just being random. That's politically formed. Um, And so um, the book is really trying to find that line of, of when can we address these questions and when can't we? And it's, it's, it's kind of exhilarating in that way. It's made me question a lot of my desires, I have to say. Amazing. Well, I'm going to order that next. I've been really looking forward to reading it. Thank you so much, Amri, for coming on. Thank you for having me and congrats on the release of We Can Do Better Than This. I'm so honoured to have an essay in it. So, hey, Lucia, how are you? Hey, I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I guess we should say that although you very kindly contributed this essay to We Can Do Better Than This, this is the first time we've ever actually spoken. Yeah, that, mad. I I mean, I don't know enough about how publishing used to work before the pandemic, but my sense is that it was generally quite networky and you'd physically see people well before you worked with them usually. Yeah, I would have hoped we would. Um, but I don't know, where are you based? Are you in the UK or are you in Ireland? Um, I'm in the UK, in London. So, yeah, I think I probably would have met a lot of people by now. Yeah, we're okay. We have absolutely no excuse. But, um, yeah, thank you for your essay and we can do better than this. I'm going to um, read a bit of it out in a second. Um, but first, just to sort of introduce what we're talking about here... We're talking about queer books that shaped us um, and why queer reading is important. Even, you know, not just sort of like while you're figuring out your identity and growing up, but even, you know, well, I think we're all figuring out our identity and growing up all the time, but, you know, even into adulthood as well. Um, But to start with, I did want to go back and ask you, were there any kind of formative queer books on on your reading list when you were a bit younger? Yeah, I think Oscar Wilde was really a seminal figure for me. And I think this is often the case with queer representation because it makes one vulnerable. It's often not the axis that one meets a queer author at um, at a young age. So I think my introduction to Wilde was very much as a 
a classic Irish writer through the children's stories and then later um, the novels, Dorian Gray and the plays and all that. And it was really only later when I untangled my queerness and his that I figured out why it had all clicked for me. But I think that's nicer in a way. I think I would have been very resistant in some fantasy world where I had parents who were like, you're gay, have a gay book, to that mode of being boxed in. So I think that's not to say that I'm glad that there was such an environment of erasure and shame and fear, but I do think it let me meet Wilde and authors of that ilk on my own terms without the awareness at the time that there was an identity component to it. Mm. You said something clicked. What about Wilde's writing was it? Was a sort of camp sensibility or...? Yeah, I think what Wilde understood about camp is that it's not about simply going all out. It's about embodying a contradiction and not one that you're seeking to resolve, one that you're happy to surf and to make into an aesthetic. So... I think that really clicked with the sense that for LGBT people, contradiction is something that we live with, right? It's something that's embedded in who we are and how we relate to the world around us. It's not something that we're looking to solve. It's something that will define us however explicitly we ever reckon with our concept. Oh my god, I love that. It's true, it's true. Talking about books that maybe you don't necessarily meet on a queer level made me think about when I first read Giovanni's Room when I was about 18 or 19, and I suppose that's one of the first sort of like, air quote, gay books I read. But I kind of just read it as like a really beautiful and tragic love story. And I know that you've mentioned in the past that James Baldwin... Um, was quite influential on you and your reading. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think what strikes me the most of Baldwin's gifts is that he's interested in the systemic, he's interested in the forces that shape us and that lead his characters down particular paths, but he never loses the human in the process. And... For me, that was a fascinating mode of conveying a scale of experience to compare with a lot of the Victorian authors that I'd been immersed with who I think do lose the person, who render everything ultimately to type or to fate. I think Baldwin, it it's the attention to detail that does it. It's these poetic telling instances with his characters that convey a lot more than you would immediately think and you can't often articulate exactly what it's suggesting about them and that's what makes it so well chosen and that's what makes it something that transcends simply a sociology text. I think he understands what fiction is and why he's writing fiction. And what about Orlando? Um, I know that was a book that has affected you. Yeah, I think just seeing Virginia Woolf have fun is always going to be somewhat inspiring. I think more than almost any other author I've read, 
she's very clearly writing for herself and she's very happy with not being read and loved by everyone. And that's often framed in a combative way, you know, the unlikable female narrator or this perception that if someone's writing something that might not be instantly accessible to everyone, they're doing it from a place of condescension or scorn. Whereas I think you would have to be really trying to read Orlando in that way. I think anything about it that's opaque or hard to grasp is clearly there to make it more fun for Wolf and for anyone who's on her wavelength. So it's a freeing book in that sense. It's one that reassures anyone who reads it that they too can write for themselves and they're not being a bad person for doing so. Mm. Yeah, I remember when I read it, I, I wasn't really reading it as a writer. I was quite young. But I remember my takeaway from it was like, I kind of want to c- cover this much sort of geographical ground um, and and just sort of like, yeah, traipse through time and space in this way. Um, that to me is obviously what's so queer about it. And I think there are some things about it that haven't aged that well, um, which was why I was really grateful for, did you read um, Andrea Lawler's book, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, which is kind of a reimagining of Orlando? Yes. What did you think? Yeah, similarly, I I think it's a freeing sensibility to see updated and made new. And I, I, I'm looking forward even more to seeing what it inspires. I think a lot of people who are still finding themselves as writers now have been hugely influenced in, in turn by Lawler. So I'm interested to see what that does as well. Yeah, it's apparently it took them like 15 years or something to write that book but I think think it's very very you know worth it and yeah I think it's just like so nice to read something that kind of really dismantles society's binary ideas around gender or ideas around the fixity of gender but in such a kind of fun way um both sort of yeah it's punk isn't it it's just really good I'm obsessed with it yeah Generally speaking, why has queer, reading queer books been important to you or what has it given you? I think primarily it's given me the freedom to not enjoy books that aren't queer on the sole basis that they aren't queer because sometimes straight writers rely on their reader projecting things to their text that I will not be able to project. And that's their failure as authors. You should be able to write something that someone who hasn't been through your life experience will be able to connect with. But because they're straight and they often haven't had cause to question whether someone will share that experience or not, because majoritively they will have shared it, they don't do that work and they rely on that projection. So a load of straight readers go, I feel seen by this. I feel profoundly unseen. And I think without queer writing, I would probably default to blaming myself as a reader. I'd feel in some way emotionally deficient or stupid, whereas now I'm more able to compare it to queer books where probably I was doing just as much projecting, but probably I wasn't because um, I think queer authors are more used to explaining ourselves, more used to the assumption that someone won't click with it. And even if they're queer, they mightn't because obviously we're not single issue people. So I think, yeah, it's given me more confidence as a reader that my taste might be telling me something, not necessarily something universal, but something about whether a book's for me and whether it's my fault if it isn't. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. 
And I wanted to talk a bit about your book, Exciting Times, um, your sort of your contribution to queer literature, as it were. Um, and you've written about the experience of writing it in We Can Do Better Than This, uh, right at the start of your essay, which is about sort of allowing people to have the space to be fluid um, and to be working things out. And I've got the book in front of me, so I'm going to do the weird thing of just reading out a little bit of what you wrote. Um, so as a queer novelist, I veer between motives. One is to depict LGBTQ plus people as individuals, as complicated, and the other is to make them as universally likable as possible. Expectations also weigh on me from cisgender heterosexuals who read my work anthropologically, brackets, whatever the gays up to now, to those who wish to see themselves. I try to please everyone. Three words in, I remember I can't. Art has starved the community of visibility, so we might understandably snap when serve things we can't eat. Still, unexamined, quote, relatability is corporate. It reduces experience to branding. It's admirable to give LGBTQ plus readers someone to root for, to show us winning, but it's not the only worthy aim. You might want to do other things it's incompatible with. Representation is a wedding gift list. It works best if we all choose different things, and less well if we all come with spatulas. I serve up terrible people and trust other writers who offer role models. I love that so much, and, and I kind of guess it kind of makes me think of a bit of what you've been talking about already. Um, but could you possibly explain that a bit further, and maybe in the context of exciting times? Yeah, so I think probably my favourite subgenre of contemporary literary fiction is the intensely unpleasant self-loathing woman goes through life in a brief span of time in a big city novel and Atessa Moshfeg does them so well and I just love those books I love reading them I love writing them and it's not that I took on this conscious mindset when I was writing exciting times but in hindsight I think what I did was go I'm going to write one of those novels because I'm not interested in writing about a straight woman, the protagonist probably won't be straight. And I'm not going to oblige myself, therefore, to sanitise the genre just because I'm dealing with a community whose representation has been somewhat more fraught because I'm in that community. And when I read these books, I don't want other features of that genre to change just because the protagonist is queer. So in the same way that a straight protagonist in this subgenre that not everyone likes because people have different tastes will have gross habits and thoughts and do bad things and be annoying. Like, that's what makes the genre so interesting to me and so fun because it's something that's reflective of actual people as I perceive them. So I think there is an argument that I disagree with but that um, can be compellingly made and that I can see the merits of that there's a duty to, I suppose, show queer people in a quote-unquote good light. But I think where it falls down is that good light is impossible to define in a way that I don't find dripping with respectability politics and a misunderstanding of what literature is for. So I think just being allowed to be messy and 
not taking huge personal offence if a character who shares our sexuality does something that we disagree with or is not like us in other respects is, to me, the best approach to queer writing. And not everyone will agree, and that's completely fine, but the sort of writing that I want to read and produce is writing that allows humans to be deeply ugly despite their sexuality. Mm. Yeah, that passage really made me think of um, Carmen Maria Machado's book in the Dream House. Yeah, which is so amazing and one of my favourite queer books. But I think Carmen talks about that so well, the sort of like weight, the burden of sort of good, inverted commas, good representation um, and how it's just a lot more kind of messy and nuanced than that. To come back to sort of queer books that that are uh, that have had you know had an had an effect on you or influenced you is there anything you've read more recently yeah so um it's fresh in my mind because i just had the pleasure of speaking to him last night um for an american launch um paul mendez's rainbow milk it's a debut that came out around the same time as mine and we became kind of first book twins and then friends because we're both in london and it's very much in the tradition of the epiphany of arrival in London, young person finding themselves type of book. It's about Jessie, a young gay black man from the black country who comes down to London and um, kind of gets by as a sex worker and the prose is just infused with this constant newness and influx of sensation and experience and... I think what's exceptional about it is that it feels entirely true to the protagonist's voice throughout, but it's still got this fluidity and it takes in a great deal. And I think that's the kind of contradiction that we've seen in queer writing for as long back as there's been writing that one can call queer. So it's so plugged into the tradition in that sense, but it's also entirely new and its own beast. Mm, I love that book. I'm so glad you mentioned Paul because I also love Paul. It, it's it's absolutely incredible. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, I think I and a good one that I wanted to mention that I, I just read that I had never read before um, was Sarah Shulman's People in Trouble. Have you have you read that? I haven't. I would highly highly recommend it. Because um, before we when we, we were sort of planning this and I was you know thinking about the topic. Um, and I was thinking, you know, when I was maybe younger, I, I was, I would read queer books to kind of get the feeling like, to understand the sort of culture, um, to understand queer culture, but also to just sort of like feel like perhaps that I was part of something bigger. And then I've been thinking about how my relationship with queer reading has changed. <laughs> I basically was reading People in Trouble by Sarah Shulman on, on holiday recently. And it's basically about a woman called Kate, who's an artist, um, and married to a man, and is having an affair with a woman, a younger woman called Molly. And Kate is also kind of starting to experiment with cross-dressing. And Molly, meanwhile, a young lesbian living in New York, it's it's set against the backdrop of um, the the AIDS crisis and a lot of poverty. And that the New York that Sarah Shulman writes about is very kind of apocalyptic and you know it really captures that that time and and the death and the poverty um 
and it's it's all about Kate sort of coming into her queerness and a bit later in life and also becoming an activist and it, it's kind of about privilege and personal responsibility and reading it I just sort of sat up and had this profound sense of like oh am I am I am I doing enough like am I kind of growing up and becoming more bourgeois or more heteronormative and sort of like that's all about those things and it's all about personal responsibility and I think that for me was like a really powerful outcome of reading a book a queer book I would really highly recommend that to anyone listening and I would also recommend it to you because um it's also about a three a kind of a three way relationship as exciting times is in a way so there might be some interesting parallels yeah that sounds fascinating do you want to maybe leave us with um what's next on your queer reading list or what you're you're looking forward to reading so I've been very slowly working through a book you might have heard of called We Can Do Better Than This. And I think that's really the beauty of it, because it's something that is bingeable. But the way I am right now, I just have so much on and constant wasps in my brain. So I've just been doing an essay every couple of days and they're fantastic so far. They all of perspectives that I hadn't considered or had been looking for without realising. So I'm really looking forward to getting through the rest of it in my own good time. Yeah, well, thank you for being in it. And yes, I suppose the perks of both an essay collection and short books is when you're a bit busy, uh, they're handy to have around. We love a short book. Cool. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. We hope you enjoyed that conversation and thank you for tuning in. You can find out more about We Can Do Better Than This in the show notes. We'd also like to know, what are you reading to mark Pride Month? You can find us on at Vintage Books on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to let us know. Until next time, keep reading boldly and thinking differently.